Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this is actually the start of something new at the podcast. This is a special mini-series that will be released weekly alongside the regular releases on Thursdays. I'm calling this mini-series 100 Years of Fascism, and it's to commemorate the 100th episode of the podcast, uh, which is actually going to be releasing after this miniseries starts. So this miniseries is starting before the episode that it commemorates, but you know, whatever, this is is probably fine. In any case, this uh, miniseries is going to talk about 100 years of fascist history because uh, serendipitously, the Italian fascist party, pretty much universally acknowledged as the beginning of fascism as such, was founded in 1922, and here we are in 2022. However, this episode, episode zero of the miniseries, is going to talk about, you know, what came before that. What came before fascism? Well, in many cases, scholars call this proto-fascism, just, you know, the the prefix proto-fascism. This is a somewhat difficult term to define for a lot of the same reasons that people have a hard time defining what fascism is itself. You know, the question is, is proto-fascism just fascism that came about before the foundation of the Italian fascist party? Or is it political movements that resemble fascism but predate its modern conditions, like modern mass party, mass politics? Or are they political movements that are just not quite fascism but are kind of close? Um, Sometimes people call uh, modern political organizations, like contemporary political organizations, proto-fascist in the same way. You know, something that could become fascist is something that people call proto-fascism occasionally. Also, proto-fascism is a term used to describe literal precursors to what would eventually become fascist organizations. Uh, So in this case, we're talking about like uh, Italian and German political movements that eventually become the Nazi party or the Italian fascist party, for example. Like I said, this is a pretty thorny theoretical topic, uh, since it shares a lot uh, with questions about how one would define fascism at all. Are we looking for a minimum viable definition, you know, like a a checklist of things where if you meet all of these criteria, you're a fascist organization? Is it a set of traits that, you know, you need to meet some, but not necessarily all of them? Uh, is it a style or a mode of operating? Is it a just an affect? Uh, is it a set of aesthetics? Uh, there are a lot of different ways that people talk about fascism. As a scholar and as a podcaster, uh, I use a definition of fascism that comes from both academics and also from other political actors, people fighting fascists, as well as people studying them. Uh, and so this means that rather than retreading old ground about like what is fascism, which is a special episode on this podcast that I would direct your attention to if you're looking for a specific definition. Uh, I'm going to be talking about fascism in this episode as something a little bit more amorphous because I'm talking about things that came about before the existence of the fascist movement as such. Historically, fascism, both in the general movement sense and the specific Italian political organization that is its namesake, uh, it has its origins in the early 20th century, specifically World War I and immediately after World War I. Uh, both Mussolini and Hitler were soldiers in World War I, as were many of the other early fascists. Uh, so the simplest thing would be to say that anything that came before World War I 
and is kind of right-wing in the same way that fascists are, is proto-fascist. But I think that we can get a little bit better than that, right? Uh, So I'm going to be talking this week in this episode of 100 Years of Fascist History about the precursors to fascism. One necessary example would be Napoleon III, uh, who I spoke about in a See You in Hell segment in a previous episode. I couldn't tell you which. Napoleon III was, yes, uh, that Napoleon, uh, but, well, he was related specifically to Napoleon Bonaparte, the first emperor of France. Napoleon III was uh, the original Napoleon's nephew, and he was the president of France in 1848, and then became the second emperor of France after an autogolpe, a self-coup, uh, that he perpetrated in 1852. And he remained the emperor of France until 1870. Napoleon III is the subject of Karl Marx's 18th Brumaire, uh, which is, is was, remains uh, one of the best-written works on the right wing ever. Uh, it's quite short, it's polemic, it's... Uh, extremely well-written. If you've found other pieces of writing by Marx, for example, uh, Das Kapital, uh, to be intimidating or difficult to get into, Etienne Brumaire is very different. I highly recommend giving it a read. Uh, In this book, Marx describes Napoleon and his supporters as Bonapartists, which is one of the words that people use when they describe figures on the right wing that are not exactly fascists, but are, you know, fellow travelers or potentially proto-fascists. Uh, Napoleon III and his supporters want a lot of things that other right-wing people want. You know, they're nationalists. uh, They lead popular uprisings against democracy. uh, They represent a lot of the things that in the contemporary world we would call populist, right? You know, they they stand for the common man against the elites. They oppose the technocracy. You know, they oppose the politicization of politics, what they think of. You know, they think that it should just be common sense that could rule things. Uh, Therefore, a sort of lowest common denominator type politics. This is a lot of those things. Uh, But another aspect of uh, Bonapartists and also Napoleon III's political movement that make them not exactly fascist is that they're fundamentally reactionaries and not revolutionaries, right? Napoleon III staged this coup because he wanted to be the emperor. You know, he wasn't trying to create a radical new form of government. He wanted an old form of government, right? He wanted a monarchy. And this is one of the main things that separates a lot of proto-fascist organizations from fascists, is the fact that they are not revolutionary, that they are not trying to build a radically new world. And this is another one of the reasons that I would argue another popular contender for an early fascist organization doesn't quite fit the bill. And in this case, I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. Uh, The first KKK was founded in the United States in 1865 in Tennessee by former Confederate soldiers, uh, by former Confederate officers, who were dissatisfied, upset, angry at the way that Reconstruction was going, at the direction that the United States was being rebuilt in the wake of the Civil War. The organization spread throughout the South as a sort of secretive fraternal organization, again, generally consisting of other Confederates and their sympathizers. It was a secret paramilitary organization that promoted antebellum values, antebellum meaning, you know, the values of the United States South prior to the Civil War, uh, which means racism, patriarchy. Um, But it also means uh, opposing a lot of other changes, like democratization, Uh, or the idea that local elites don't pick and choose government officials 
just alone uh, that 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 those elections are free and earnestly democratic. So the first Kulu Klux Klan was a terrible, disgusting right-wing paramilitary organization. They uh, marauded around the countryside and in cities. Uh, they murdered people, not only black people, although they primarily targeted black Americans. Uh, they also murdered whites, uh, who they thought were uh, the allies of black-oriented reconstruction. Um, they engaged in voter intimidation. They engaged in threat. They engaged in sabotage. Um, they did a whole lot of violent campaigning. But they weren't exactly a revolutionary group either. Uh, fundamentally, they could be described as revanchist. Now, revanchism is a term that I've brought up at other times in the podcast, and as a refresher, uh, it means a right-wing organization whose politics is organized around specifically the reclaiming of lost territory. The KKK wanted the South to go back to the way it was. They wanted to turn back the clock. They didn't want to advance time and become something new, something revolutionary. You know, that they didn't want to build a radical new world. They wanted to go back in time and not that far back in time. They wanted to go like four or five years back in time. That's not exactly a revolutionary project. Uh, fascists are necessarily revolutionaries. Uh, they are trying to change the world and change the people in it. The second clan uh, from the 1910s is also before fascism. It also predates the foundation of the Italian fascist party. But again, they are also a fraternal organization that was more about maintaining the Jim Crow status quo against progress, uh, rather than an organization earnestly attempting to remake the world in a new revolutionary image. So I would argue that they don't necessarily fit the bill either. There are some other examples from the late 19th century, much like the KKK, uh, that meet some definitions of fascism or that, you know, deserve to be called proto-fascists. And so that's why I'm talking about them here. Uh, we have Charles Marat, uh, who is a French theologian whose nationalism and counter-revolutionary politics make him a, you know, a clear proto-fascist. But again, he was a reactionary fundamentally. You know, he wanted uh, sort of medieval theological thinking to organize life and politics, whereas uh, the people who we would ultimately describe as fascists in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, that is the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, uh, were modern in a lot of senses. They wanted to build a new world full of new men. Uh, Charles Murad did not exactly want that. He sort of wanted to turn back the clock. Another example is uh, Gabriele D'Annunzio, an Italian nationalist and poet and revanchist uh, who launched an invasion of a city uh, which Italians at the time called Fiumi and which Croatians who uh, were living in this city and who claimed it as their own uh, call uh, Rijeka. Uh, he launched this invasion after World War I, but prior to the foundation of the Italian fascist party. D'Annunzio was a corporatist, a right-winger, a nationalist, uh, a poet, uh, somebody who believed in the aestheticization of politics, uh, as in like that politics is better when it is not about a specific ideology or program, but is rather about a, a set of aesthetic postures, you know, uh, behaviors, symbols, sayings, that sort of thing, uh, which is another way that people talk about fascism specifically and differentiate it from other political movements. 
But again, uh, Dionysio was not exactly a revolutionary, although he's a little bit closer. And his eventual collaboration with the Italian fascist movement, uh, prior to his death at least, uh, makes him a really obvious example of a proto-fascist. Other examples of proto-fascism include uh, just clear organizational precursors to what would become just like fascist organizations. Uh, for example, the German National People's Party, a pan-Germanist national organization uh, which united various factions on the German right wing. Uh, so we're talking monarchists, uh, we're talking uh, right wing theologians, uh, we're talking pan-German nationalists. Pan-German nationalism was an ideology from the 19th and 20th centuries that said that all German people everywhere, all ethnic linguistic Germans, should be united under one state. And this is one of the motivating factors behind the Nazi party, for example. Uh, another clear organizational precursor to fascist organizations, but an Italian case, is the Italian Nationalist Association, uh, which was founded in part by the aforementioned uh, De Anuncio. Uh, again, this is a revanchist paramilitary organization, but again, because of their uh, differences, because they weren't quite the revolutionary party that the Italian fascist party would eventually become, they don't exactly meet the definition either. Now, in both of these cases, the German National People's Party and the Italian Nationalist Association, uh, not just the people involved in those organizations, which were active primarily after World War I, uh, the people involved in those organizations would eventually go on to join, found, be part of uh, what would become the Nazi Party and the Fascist Party. Uh, but also these organizations were sort of like precursors. They were some of the set of right-wing organizations that were operative not just in Germany and Italy, but throughout the Western world during this period of time, specifically in the 1910s and early 1920s. And it is from this set of organizations, from these organizations that believed in a lot of the things that fascists believe in, uh, nationalism, the use of violence as a, not just as a means of engaging in politics, but as what politics is, as the content of politics. Uh, the belief in, you know, some form of revolutionary ideology, that the world, that the state needs to be remade, not just that it needs to go back to the way it was, but that it needs to be something radically new and that the people in it need to change. They need to become radically new people generally more violent, more nationalistic people in order to fit that new world and to build it. Uh, these are the things that uh, will carry forward the fascist movement and uh, result in the foundation, establishment, and growth of the Italian fascist party, the German Nazi party, and the other fascist organizations that grew up at the same time, not just in Europe, but around the world in the 1920s and 1930s. And that will be the subject of the next few episodes in this mini-series. So, thanks for joining me at the start of this mini-series. And as ever, I'm Craig Johnson, thanking you uh, for joining us for 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. Thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And directing you to my Twitter, Hist of the Right at twitter.com, my Gmail, which is uh, 15 Minutes of Fascism on gmail.com, and my Patreon, which is also 15 Minutes of Fascism at Patreon. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.